Um, I wanted to give all of you my own thanks. Um, I, my family and I, well, we watched last week, what, was it Sunday, Monday, we got to see the video that you all helped to make for Pastor Appreciation Day, month. Um, it was 45 minutes long, it, which was great. Uh, at, at first, I was like, this is a long YouTube video, um, but it flew by, and uh, I was so, so grateful for everyone who was on that video, um, and the many people who weren't, um, there's people in there that are like from way blast from the past, and some of you all that are here today, and um, it meant a lot to me to hear, especially it's so silly, but um, the little kids who would say things like, thank you for baptizing me, um, you know, I don't know how much of that line is fed to them by their parents, um, but it meant, means a lot for me to do it, and um, I really appreciate especially um, being able to be a part of their story, of your story, um, it's just fun to be able to reflect on that. So, thank you for that, and and the way that you all bless my family is just incredibly generous, ridiculous. Um, thank you for that. Um, I mean that sincerely. So, I do want to say uh, I said last week that I've been extremely, extremely privileged to serve with a number of elders, um, and I'm actually kind of talking about them today. I didn't plan that, but um, I do want to say, like, you have you have had an incredible gift of, of people who have led in our church and have done it for free and have given so much more than you realize, and I get to see it, and that's a gift to me. Um, I hope that you will think of your elders and thank them for what they do to serve and to lead our church. I'm extremely grateful for every single one of them, and I mean that sincerely. Um, I'm grateful to Jeremiah, who worked for us for seven years and kept me on the rails in a lot of ways. And... uh, we had some time to talk about him a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to make sure I also mentioned Amy, um, who has been with us, you know, for almost a year now, and has been incredible. I mean, most of you know that. A lot of you have pulled her aside to talk to her about a number of things, and you should continue to do that because she can do all of them. Um, she's an incredible um, partner in ministry and has been a gift to our church. I mean, she's not here today, so um, I don't have to worry about her head getting too big. But um, I hope that you'll express appreciation to her for her work as well. Our, our church is extremely, extremely gifted by her presence in her ministry. So thank you to all of our people, our elders, our staff, all of you. I would not have made it 10 years I my probably would not have made it 10 months. So thank you very much. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. Advent is, is 
is quickly approaching. So we're, we're going to be in Acts for three more weeks. So we're not going to cover all of the book of Acts. Uh, last week, Ben Lillard, one of our ruling elders, preached from Acts chapter 19. Again, he killed it. If you were here last week, you know, but if you were not here, you need to know, he did great. That was the first time he ever preached, and I really hope that nobody finds my first time preaching to compare it to his, because it was way worse than that. Uh, he did great. He was so good, um, and I'm uh, grateful to be able to just jump off from where he was. He took us through all the way to the end of 19, and we're in chapter 20, verse 17, We'll read to the end of the chapter. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, they said to him, You yourselves know, he said to them, sorry, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. It's alive with your own power and authority. And Father, I pray that all of us together might be submitted to this word, that we would be bowing the knee perpetually to your voice. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are your people, that you loved us and generously gave yourself for us. 
Help us to listen closely to the voice of your spirit. Amen. If you're not familiar with the book of Acts, things profoundly change from this moment on. The rest of the book of Acts, seven-ish chapters, will be Paul in a process that will lead to his death. And you don't see the death of Paul in Scripture. Acts 28 ends with him in custody. It does not end with his death, but he ends in the city of his death. We know by tradition that Paul ends up being beheaded in the city of Rome. Paul knows that the events that are about to occur will result in his death. He doesn't know exactly how or when, but you can hear that he's gathered these leaders of the church in Ephesus to tell them that this will be the last time that they would see one another. This is a farewell address. And Paul is telling these brand new church leaders what it is that he needs for them to know and to remember and to protect as they go forward to multiply the church and what he calls Asia, what we would call Asia Minor. This address here is not the only place where Paul talks about what it means to be a, a Christian leader, to lead in the church. We often read those kinds of instructions in books like Titus, First and Second Timothy, and other places. This is unique, though, because you can actually, in some ways, see Paul having the conversation with the people that he's talking to. And you can see, too, as you saw at the end, the affection that is there amongst these church leaders, that this is a, a really sorrowful goodbye. They are sad to see him go. And the passage ends with tears in anticipation of what lies ahead. But it's worth attending here that to the things that Paul commands the church to pay attention to. And I'm going to take here two attributes of teachers, of leaders in the church that Paul says is vital. One is something to be desired, and another is something to avoid. And these two things are not happenstance, but they are linked together for good reason. The first thing that Paul says to these leaders as they will go and grow the church and lead the church that he has started in Ephesus is that they ought to find for them leaders that can teach. Paul focuses on this teaching ministry of church leadership that is vital for all of what we would call elders. It's the same word. Paul will use this word overseers interchangeably in the way that we talk about elders. So when we talk about people who are leading in our church, we are not talking about just me, but everybody who serves as an elder in our church is somebody who ought to be able to teach. And teaching is of vital importance in Paul's mind for what it is that a church leader is supposed to do. And he interestingly, is focusing on the ways that teaching can go wrong. He tells them that they ought to beware of, of people who would teach in such a way that false teaching would come in and the people would be corrupted, the people would be dragged away by the wolves, is the imagery that he gives. And this is understandable on, on a kind of surface level, 
We're talking about the ability to understand and to communicate what it is right doctrine. Because for Paul and for all of the New Testament church, it's not mere doctrine. But it is instead the voice of God speaking to his church who God desires his people to be. And that information is not mere information, but has ramifications for your heart. And Paul sees this as not just they ought to be able to teach X, Y, and Z, but they should also not be afraid to teach the things that would trouble the people who might listen. And this is where the burden of leadership becomes really difficult And why you as members of a church, as participants in the life of a church, ought to be really careful and discerning as you choose who should be your leaders. That you should look out for people who both know the truth and are committed to teaching it to you, even if and when you don't want to hear it. Because Paul is aware of the fact that you and I are inclined to not want to hear some things that God might want to tell you. And this can take shape in a lot of ways. It's, it's clear in sort of issues of our day when people talk about things like gender and sexuality and what you should do with your money. These are areas where we might be inclined to sort of draw circles around things in our life and say, do not go here. Do not talk about these things with me. And those things are the easy things. Now, they trouble people. They cause people to get angry, to get hurt, to sort of pull back, to get defensive, to breathe in very tightly when I'm about to talk about those things, to breathe out very quickly when I haven't trampled on toes in the way that you don't want your toes trampled on. Those things are the easy things. But the easy things are, are things that can be easily missed as well. When Scripture speaks clearly to areas of our life that we are naturally protective of and don't want to hear Scripture speaking to, we ought to pay attention. And we should not be quick to choose leaders who are afraid to speak to these sensitive areas if Scripture speaks clearly. Now, speaking clearly doesn't mean being a jerk which is hard for some people to understand. You can speak clearly without being a jerk. And that balance is something you ought to look for in a leader. Somebody who, with the careful hands of a surgeon, would say precisely what needs to be said, and not more, and not less. I was reading Calvin's commentary on this passage, and he says, leaders know then not everything needs to be said in one moment. But the faithful leaders ought to be committed to teaching all things when and if it is possible. And again, these are the easy things, I would say. It's also easy and more difficult in another way because of how easy it is to avoid, to look and and fail to lift the lid on the underlying commitments that many of us make without even realizing that we need to be taught to them. Here's what I mean. You can value the right thing doctrinally 
the right thing from the creeds of the church, from the Westminster Confession, whatever it might be. You may value the truth and what is good and what is right. But if you move that thing into central priority, out of balance of what it should be, and make that thing the grid by which you evaluate others who are fellow Christians, and in the grid by which you determine whether you can be friends or not, you start to make secondary things of primary importance, and when that happens, that is a form of false teaching. What's tricky about it, though, is that because you are right about that thing, it feels like I ought to defend this right thing to the death. And if anybody might question my commitment to this important right thing that I am correct about, they must be a heretic. They must be somebody I ought to stay far away from. And a good teacher doesn't just come to your list of doctrines and just say, let's check these off one by one. But a good teacher gets in to the messiness of your life and says, how is this actually ordering your loves and affections so that you might rightly follow Jesus? That's why our elders, our leaders here, do not all need to be able to teach from here. We are concerned that our leaders in this church can teach there. And Paul speaks about these different dimensions of teaching when he says, I've taught in public and from house to house. Because the teaching that Paul is describing is not only, is not confined to this space right here. It is coming into your neighborhood. It is coming to your own household. So Paul does not envision a kind of teaching leadership that says, if we could just draw people to one place once a week, have some guy give a speech, and then they can leave, and then that's fine. We're checking the box of good teaching. That is not right. If you are being truly taught, you are hearing in public, and you are receiving in private. If you are being truly taught, you are hearing what needs to be heard in a space like this, and you are experiencing a teacher walking alongside of you and saying, what is the order and the nature of your loves? Let me give you an example I have heard so many times from mature believers who are far ahead of me especially that come from churches like ours. When I was young and I became Presbyterian for the first time, I was passionate about the doctrines of grace and sovereignty and providence. And I used those things like a weapon so that I could cut off fellow Christians from my fellowship or hammer people for the immaturity. And now that I've grown up decade on decade of following Jesus, my priorities have been realigned. My beliefs about those things have not changed. But the central and most important thing for me is the exaltation of Jesus 
and letting Jesus work those things out with his people. And what you hear is the fruition of good and right teaching. That is somebody who has been well taught. Because they have taken the thing that is right and good and on the list of things that you ought to believe. And it has found its its proper ordering where Jesus is preeminent. He takes center stage and he orders all the rest of the teaching. That is good teaching. You, we, should be on the lookout for good teachers. It is central for the leadership of all churches everywhere. Now, Paul also says there is a thing that you ought to avoid. And he points to this by pointing to himself. He says, watch out for people who are obsessed with silver and gold and fine clothing. Now, he is in a context where, rhetorically speaking, people go listen to teachers for fun. Now, I know that's hard to imagine in our context, but people paid to go to public lectures. I know we have like a billion hours of TED Talks for free on YouTube, but just imagine a place where people went to live TED Talks and paid for the privilege to do so. And when these public rhetoricians would come and make their arguments, this was a way, this was good business. This is a good way to make a living. And they would advance themselves off the profits of their speaking. And it was very clear that they were well compensated for what they'd done. And Paul is saying, I have never been this way with you. Paul, we know, is a tent maker. He supplies his own living. When he goes to a new place, there is no church. There's no church giving to live off of. He lives off of making tents and proceeds to continue doing it. And Paul says, you can look at my own life. I have not been in this for, for the accumulation of wealth. And this is something we ought to pay attention to. This, the speech is not very long, and this makes the cut. It should matter when especially people like me, pastors, paid ministers, are building up wealth for themselves on the backs of people who are giving. If, if the pastor that you love or idolize is getting the newest, whatever, private plane, best luxury car, I'm not doing any of those things, to be clear. Uh, it, he has all of the, the fanciest accessories, the watches, and the nicest everything. That, Paul says, you should watch out for. That is somebody who appears certainly to be in it for profit. Paul teaches, all of Scripture teaches, that money is something you should be suspicious of. Money is not wrong to have. Money is dangerous to have. And if the habits, the postures of your life are such that you are all about the accumulation of wealth and your thoughts and your hearts are bent after the building up of your bank accounts, that is not a place of spiritual safety. That is a place of spiritual danger. And Paul would say Christian leaders especially should not have that 
as part of their public testimony. And so it is worth paying attention to how much pastors are paid, how much wealth they put on display. You should look at that critically and ask the question, is this the lifestyle that should be testifying to the teaching of Jesus about the nature of wealth, especially in a culture like ours? Where possessions and stuff are so easy to accumulate. Now what's even more challenging is that the list runs longer than silver and gold in fine clothes. In our church, there is one paid elder. It's me. I'm the only one on staff that's an elder. But there are ways that the people who serve financially for free could also be in it for profit. Because the list of profit is longer. Profit can include honor, a craving for other people's approval, the increase of the reputation, the hoarding of power. And where church leaders have their hearts set on those things which are harder to track, things go wrong. And that, far too often, is usually the way that you see this warning violated. When church leaders hunger after these things, And accumulate them for themselves in these positions of leadership. A lot of people find their way into this kind of danger zone through good means. The people that you want to lead your church are people who love other people and want to serve and care for them. That's healthy and good, and godly. But when you start to grow to need to be the one that helps to serve, when you need to be the one who is there to pray, to give counsel, or whatever it is, that need transforms and imprisons your heart. (coughs) That is where you ought to pay attention. And fortunately, in my experience, our church has had wonderful people who give away, not just their possessions, but honor and recognition. They don't need to be the ones at the center of the story. You should look for more people like this. Now look at these two things together. This Teaching focus, find people who can do this, who are good at teaching, who will teach you, not just in public, but in your home, in the counseling moment, in the moment of prayer. Find teaching like that. Choose them as your leaders. Do not choose people who acquire and accumulate for themselves honor, wealth, riches, that long list. Why in this moment... Does Paul focus on these two things seemingly exclusively? Isn't this kind of the moment where 
Paul gives them a, a kind of checklist of all of the really important things about being a Christian. Why isn't there a prescription for what a leader's prayer life looks like? Why isn't all of these other good things that we could say on this list, all these things that Paul absolutely does care about, why, when Luke is summarizing this speech, do we see that this is what Paul cares about? For Paul, the center of his teaching, he gives to us in these verses. What he teaches is everything that leads to repentance and trust in Jesus. And ultimately, the leader that Paul is describing is a leader who looks as much like Jesus as possible. Jesus is the best kind of teacher. There is no better teacher in the history of the world. Jesus can teach the rejected, the neglected, the forgotten, and the despised. And can gently tell them the good news that the Father is the King of Heaven and wants them home with Him. And he can also pull out the sword that is his mouth and cut right to the center of your heart and tell you exactly what it is that you need to know. That even if you look on the outside to being obeying the commandments not to be an adulterer or a murderer, God sees straight to the middle of your heart. Jesus will tell you whatever it is that you actually need to hear, even if it's not what you want to hear. Jesus doesn't just receive the, the rich young ruler in front of him who says, I want to follow you, who looks to be moral and upstanding, and say, great job, buddy, come along, let's do this thing. He says, great, sell everything that you have, knowing this is exactly the place where this young man is in bondage. And at that moment of crisis, he can't surrender. Jesus turns away an influential follower so that that young man could hear what he needed to hear instead. Jesus does not accumulate for himself possessions or even honor. But as instead, Paul would say, the one who impoverishes himself gives away everything that is rightfully his so that you might benefit from the riches of his own storehouse. Paul says in Philippians 2 that he's God, he deserves all of the praise and honor, he divests himself of everything, taking on the form of a servant and going to the most shameful, horrific mode of death that is exposed to the world. He has literally nothing to hide his shame so that you might be clothed and embraced by the generosity of God. So when Paul is telling you, find leaders who are teachers, who will teach you from the front and in your living room, who will teach you not just by the, the finery of their words, but the display of their lives. What he's telling the church is, find people who look like Jesus. Because the center of the church is Jesus. The chief end of the church is Jesus. 
The chief point of everything that we do here at Valley Hope ought to be to make Christ preeminent. It is Jesus Christ and Him glorified that Paul says is the center of what Ephesus should be about as a church together. And that charge, that instruction rings down to us. That we don't want to be a church who is primarily noted for having good aesthetics or having excellent programs or for me and my preaching. We don't want to be a church that's known for those things. We want to be a church that is all about Jesus. And we don't want anybody leading in our church that is also not committed to that. All of our leaders, every single one of them, ought to be able to sing this song with the entirety of their lives. It is all about Jesus. That is it. That's the whole thing. That's the whole game that we are involved in. And if our churches are full of people who also believe it is all about Jesus, then we are the most healthy, vital kind of church that we can possibly be. We have no reputation that we want to extend to anybody to the ends of the earth. We have the reputation of Jesus that we want to extend to the ends of the earth. When you and I are praying and seeking about who ought to lead in our church every single year, this is the question that you should primarily concern yourself with. Does so-and-so seem to believe that it is all about Jesus? Can I see it in the way that they teach and the way that they speak and the way that they give away their lives? Is it all about Jesus? And when they fail and when you and I fail is when you can see it best. Paul says very clearly, he teaches nothing apart from what leads to repentance and to trust in Jesus. The best-looking Christian leader is the one that can look you in the eye and tell you, I have sinned against you. I have failed you. And just like you, I have no hope apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus. And only Jesus has enough for me and has everything that I need. People of God, you have been called here by God. We start a call to worship. We are not saying like, hey, we called you. We hope you come to worship. That's not what a call to worship is. We are saying God called you here. And you might be saying, I didn't know that. I just was coming to church or, you know, my parents made me or whatever it is. Surprise. You are here because God called you here. And God called you here to worship him and him alone. And to put your trust, not in any person who will appear on this platform or in any office, but to trust in Jesus alone. You have been called here to center your hopes on the very life of God himself. That you might be transformed more and more into his image and likeness so that your life would flourish under his care and that flourishing would extend not just to yourself but to your neighbors and to the whole world. 
You have been called here to come look at Jesus, to have Jesus establish himself in preeminence again and again so that when you and I get distracted about the particularities of my life, the difficulties of the things that I face, the needs that I have, the needs of the world, the needs of my friends, everything gets reorganized around this central thing. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who is preeminent, who is central, and who will give you and I all that we need. Paul says, look for these things, because he's telling you, look for Jesus. And if you are here today, and you are realizing, I've wandered here. I have wandered off. I prioritize any number of things in my life. There are lots of things that I don't want Jesus to speak to because I don't know that I particularly trust him to speak to those things. If you're realizing there's a whole lot of ideologies, political, theological, sociological, that have taken preeminence in your life, Jesus is here to cut them down and to free you into freedom under his care. So if you've been caught up in in culture wars about issues or wars with your neighbor or wars in your business, this is not the place for those wars. Jesus and Jesus alone is ready to accept you in your repentance. And when you say, and you throw your hand up and say, that was me. I've gotten so distracted. I've wandered one more time. Jesus welcomes you home. In tenderness and love. When you turn and come home in repentance, Jesus is not waiting with his sword to cut you down. He is there to wash your feet, to bind your wounds, and to give you from his own wealth that you might be resting peacefully in the house of God again. You are called this morning to repent. And find your place at home with him. And if you are here today and you are saying, look, this is hard. Because you know what kind of people are in churches? Terrible people. My story is full of them. One, you are correct. There are terrible people in churches. Because they're all a bunch of sinners. I say they and I mean me too. We're all a bunch of people in progress. And there are people who are not just ordinary sinners. But there are people here who have stories of leaders leveraging their power and authority and position to advance their own claim at the cost of you. And when you hear Paul say, there are wolves quickly coming, you have the scars to prove it. And that that may be decades old, and it might be two weeks old. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that the God who would say that his church is a place for the weak and the wounded to come and be cared for and tended to, was not represented to you correctly 
by the people that bear his name. I'm so sorry. I don't know what, what was done to you, whether it was in ignorance or with malice. But those wounds are wounds that the shepherd cares about. And the wolves may have done their damage, but the shepherd is here. The chief shepherd who is Jesus has seen you and your pain and your isolation and your hopelessness. And he has brought you here today that he might tell you the truth. That you are loved. That he has seen what has happened to you. And because he is a good shepherd, he was furious to watch it happen. Would you come home with him today and let him bind up your wounds? I want to pray for us now. <clears throat> Father, we're so grateful that you love people like us. And we're so frustrated, angry, hurt that your church has not always been the safe harbor that it ought to be. That sin and failure and competence in places like this, in this place, have hurt so many people. And God, I pray that you would carry the weak, that you would minister to them, bind up their wounds, that you would restore hope to them where they have given it away. And Father, we as a people confess to you that we have often wandered away from right teaching. We've, we've believed things that were easier for us to believe than what your scripture clearly teaches. We've preferred to be taught things that tell us that we are fundamentally right and good. And we have even taken the good things, the right things, and put them in your place. And for that, we are truly sorry. This is all about you, Lord Jesus. And we have so often lived otherwise. Father, we do ask that this church would be led, continue to be led by people who love good teaching and to be good teachers and to move far away from the desire to accumulate for themselves wealth or honor or glory. And Father, we ask that all of us together would have our eyes fixed on you. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. You are the one who centrally defines who we are as a people together. Would you lead us ever deeper into the limitless 
oceans of your glory and your grace and help us to come home gratefully every time we wander. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your faithful love for your church, which is surely the root of all our hopes, now and forever. Amen.